Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Kansas Briefing. Today, we're going to be talking about K-12 education and what we are currently looking at here in the state of Kansas in order to improve student outcomes. So today, we have the K-12 Education Budget Chair, Christy Williams, with us out of Augusta. So before we start jumping really quickly into education, just give us a brief background about your legislative experience, when you came into the legislature, and um, just how many years you've been uh, the Education Budget Chair. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, I joined the legislature in 2015, and I am a former teacher, though I do keep my license. And I also have four kids that all went through public school and are either in college uh, or have graduated and one on her way to college next year. Fantastic. Okay, so education savings accounts, or ESAs, is the topic of conversation for this podcast. Now, this year we have a new ESA bill that has been introduced into the legislature, and it's currently what we call below the line here in the House. And so it could see action at any point whenever the majority leader decides to potentially bring it up. So with that, what does this ESA do? Why is it uh, why is there so much controversy around it that we are hearing about today, or at least we're seeing in the news, or legislators are hearing about? You know, our ESA, it's actually the Sunflower Education Equity Act. You can look it up. It's House Bill 221A. And it's controversial because it shakes things up. It doesn't allow the status quo. It provides flexibility for parents and their students so that they can learn in the best possible environment. It acknowledges that we live in challenging times. Kids are different and they need different types of learning environments and opportunities in order to have the best success. And so if you're part of the bureaucracy or if you're part of a district that doesn't want to compete or is afraid to compete, then you want the status quo. But frankly, when Kansas is ranked the 42nd in uh, the nation's report card for reading in eighth grade, I think we all need to just take a step back and say status quo is not enough. So over the last decade or even two decades, we have seen um, school funding increase by substantial amounts. Now we're paying over $4 billion, which is over half of the state general fund, into just K-12 education. And it's like, what, 51, 52% of our budget every year? So we're, we're putting more and more funding into K-12 education. What are the results that we've seen from that additional money? Unfortunately, the money has not uh, brought forth improved outcomes. Since 2015, we have seen a steady decline in student achievement. In fact, the gaps between the disadvantaged and the advantaged students has grown. And that's, again, not good enough. I could give you all kinds of statistics, but one really basic one to give you an overall picture, take all of our eighth graders in Kansas, and let's take those that have the have what we would consider at risk, the disadvantage, the ones that might be on free and reduced lunch, and let's see how they're performing on reading and math assessments. And what we're finding is that 90 percent of our at-risk eighth graders are not proficient in math and 89% are not proficient in English language arts. And sadly, if there are four categories, the highest category doesn't even have 1% of these students achieving at the very best level. I think all kids can achieve, and so therefore this is absolutely not acceptable. Let's give them more. Let's raise our standards, raise our expectations, and provide 
better and different opportunities. I think it'll even help the kids in the public schools. So that's what some people are saying is that this is going to completely decimate public schools. It's going to harm special education and um, that kids with special needs are going to get rejected and not have anywhere to go and that the public schools won't have any, any, any funding or ability to help, help those special needs kids out. So what, what is your response to that? Well, first of all, competition is actually a good thing. Here in the United States, in our American economy, we have competition every day with our businesses. But if you think about it, even our schools do. Our higher education, there is competition there. Preschools as well, there is competition as, as well. So I, I, I don't subscribe to the theory that it will destroy public education. That's really just uh, hyperbolic speech. It's silly, frankly. We can look at all of the states in the U.S. that have a lot of choice programs from Florida to Indiana to recently Iowa to Arizona, recently Utah. They're doing quite fine, their public schools. And in fact, we find that they start to improve because that old adage seems to be true. A rising tide lifts all boats and competition can be a very powerful thing. It can help everybody start to raise their expectations. And that's what I believe will happen. So if there's a family that's in an inner city here in the state of Kansas, what does this do for them? Like if, like what does the actual education savings account, what does it mean to that family? Sure. So a student that is currently in a public school, they would qualify for an educational savings account up to approximately $5,000. It moves and increases with an inflation factor that's the same that the public school students would receive for their base aid. It's only one quarter of the average cost to go to a public school. So it's a tiny amount, but they could use that money in their savings account for things such as tuition, or they could use it for a tutor or uh, online courses or to join a micro school or to homeschool at home. Frankly, there are so many opportunities for those parents to educate their kids in an alternative, non-traditional way. It just requires the Kansas legislature and the governor to say, let's do this. Let's be kids first, student-centered movement. So you said state-based aid. What does that mean? Based aid is, is a, the base amount that we multiply weightings with, and that's how we fund our system. So for example, in Kansas, we have over, let's say, 460, 470,000 public school students. Every single one of those students qualifies for base aid. So right now, that would be just over 4,800. This 24-24 year coming up, it'll be over 5,100 per pupil. But that's not the only dollars they get. You multiply that by 13 other weightings that are out there. So you might get an extra weighting for at-risk funding. You might get an extra weighting for English language only. You might get one for um, different um 2.5 miles away from the place that you go to school for transportation. There are 13 different ways that a student can get extra funding. And most students, I, I believe, have over two at least weightings. So we're talking about just that one quarter of the money that would go to a public school that would stay with his student and go to another location of the parent's choice. So where do, I mean, does the extra weighting, so if we're, let the funding for a student's almost $20,000 per pupil, 
in the state of Kansas right now. So we're only talking about $5,000 being able to be taken by that student or their family to go spend it at some other school or wherever they want. What happens to the other roughly $15,000? Well, it certainly doesn't follow the student. It stays in the school. So the schools have a funding formula that allows them to choose their highest enrollment of the previous two years. So they get to keep that number in order to go ahead and fund all their regular practices. They also get all the property tax, the 20 mills that all of us pay pay in Kansas for students and all the mills that we pay locally to support our schools. So really that is always going to be a constant plus a pay increase. Because of the uh, Gannon decision, we have committed ourselves uh, to an inflation factor. And that factor has will raise uh, the amount of money that we give to public schools by 5% in 2024 and a projected 6.5% in 2025. So the Supreme Court this last year issued an opinion, which is the reason why, you know, more states are considering at this point, this proposition at this point in time, right? Yes. There are three Supreme Court decisions, U.S. Supreme Court decisions that are on the books that relate to school choice. The original one was in 2002 that related to savings accounts. So you could open a savings account and the government could use taxpayer funded dollars and place that into the account. That would be for the parent. The parent then chooses how to spend that money. So you can't just say, well, we can't fund uh, private schools with taxpayer money. Well, that would be inconsistent with what the U.S. Supreme Court said because they said, no, you're not actually giving it to the private school. You are giving it to the parent. So that was settled in 2002. There was also another uh, Espinoza case in Montana that was a few years back and another case in Maine just recently last year that sided with the parent when they choose to uh, use taxpayer dollars for a school or a program or a tax credit that might have religious backgrounds to it. So in your committee hearing, you also heard testimony from folks saying that um, parents at homes or doing homeschooling could teach their kids about Nazi, basically a Nazi education. So what where what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, if if okay, are we gonna start, you know, having a bunch of parents start teaching Nazism in the state of Kansas? So first of all, I, I don't think that we're gonna have those types of curriculums in the state of Kansas. But second of all, if a parent chose to do that in homeschool right here today, you and I wouldn't know about that. Um, but what I can say is that abhorrent speech, things that you and I would hate, we can overwhelm that with more speech. I never think it's the place of the government to be the arbiter of what is and is not hate speech. That is a dangerous place to be. So what I w- would say to that response is let's overwhelm bad speech. I think that would be a, a minute number number of potential students that would even or parents would even consider that I would actually err on the belief that Kansans are far above that type of um, abhorrent speech and I mean they can already do this now if they wanted to right they can yeah so changing to where we have education savings accounts doesn't mean that it's opening it up to this new form of speech or teaching that could already exist within the state. No, the bill actually really does hit hard on the fact that parents or schools have the ability to use religious material. Not that Nazism is a religion per se, 
but you could perhaps argue that atheism is. And this act, this program would not inhibit someone from teaching their child a humanistic view, an atheistic view of any type of subject matter they wanted to teach. What it really does is it puts the onus on the parents to teach those four areas of mathematics and English and grammar and reading and social studies and science. They must do those things. And it's uh, the state is not going over and checking every single curriculum item. We have tried to do those types of things here at our public schools, but we're still not at uh, proficiency for the majority of our students. So with rural schools, because we have obviously a lot of those here in Kansas, how would an education savings account ultimately impact those rural schools? And there's some that are that say, well, this doesn't actually impact rural schools. And why would I, you know, potentially, or as a legislative perspective, why should I support it um, if really I only have one school district in my in my neck of the woods at this point in time and it's a public school district well it's interesting because we really hear both sides of the deb- debate from the rural schools on one hand they'll say we don't have any private schools so this is not going to impact us at all but on the other hand they say well this is going to drain our schools we're going to lose enrollment this is really going to hurt us well it can't be both And the reality is, is many of our rural communities are losing population. And it obviously has nothing to do with educational savings account, has to do with the movement of people across our state, opportunities for work. So what I would say is this is an encouragement for those communities that may experience some loss in population because it allows parents to unify and create their own versions, their own micro schools. It allows for individuals that might not want to go to a public school to move into an area, work remotely, and also school their children in an an alternative manner. Um, It's There's so many possibilities that can be had with this. I think the number one thing to remember is if you have a great school and you continue to have a great school, parents in your rural area will want to remain in that great school. Alternatives are not necessarily a threat at all. They just give parents the ability to make the best decision for their child, regardless of where they live. So when it comes to school accreditation, because one of the things that I've heard uh, during testimony that was in front of your committee is that we're going to make it to where these a bunch of micro schools or other things could start popping up and they're not accredited. Well, what does that mean? And and is it a risk that the state of Kansas would be taking if, if a school is or isn't accredited? And then I got to follow up about accreditation within a school district boundaries as well that we currently see existing. Sure. Well, accreditation hasn't really caused a lot of um, improvement in the state of Kansas. It is not the gold standard that we would like it to be. We would all maybe naturally assume an accredited school means that they're up to par, they're proficient, they're doing all the right things, the, the, the achievement gaps are closing, but that's just not the case. We have 286 school districts in Kansas, and I don't know of one single school district that has ever been not accredited. So if that 
that's the situation where we can have up to 90% of our at-risk kids not proficient and they can still be accredited, then we must be not measuring the right things. And I just add that last year, the uh, Department of Education and the State Board of Education, they revamped the rules and regulations. And for accreditation, they changed some of the criteria and they actually renamed what it was and said that it's the process of documenting. Well, that sounds like a lot of wasted time. If the process is not about improving, but instead it's about documenting, then I think that what we're doing is we're putting a lot of extra work on our teachers and administrators and for what purpose? So while some might say accreditation is very, very important, I I would actually push back and say, show me how and why. Does it improve outcomes? And I don't think so. So my uh, theory on this is let's allow the freedom, the education freedom to make distinct choices about how to educate and not inhibit those choices with lots of rules and regulations and accreditation and see how kids do. Because right now our homeschoolers in Kansas have an average ACT score of 26. And our average ACT score for public school students that are entering our Regent universities is between 22 and 23. And so with this accreditation conversation that we're having, they shifted it at some point in time from the school to the school district. So if a school, let's say Wichita, because we're about down, both down in that area. So if a school in, you know, the inside city, very, you know, middle of Wichita is struggling or is not doing well to teach those students, are they at risk of losing their accreditation? No, because the accreditation, to your point, is by district and not by individual school. So if a school is performing poorly, their district is kind of like that masked cover for that. But again, what does accreditation really mean? There are five areas they look at. One, social emotional learning, graduation rates, which are highly subjective. And uh, frankly, the uh, state assessments are not a part of that. They are required to take a state assessment, but whether or not they, they improve overall in any category of subgroup is not part of it as its major feature. So I think we're just pushing in the wrong direction on accreditation, and it should be something that the state board reevaluates. So when we start looking at uh, these students going into post-secondary education, um, how much uh, remedial training are we having to see out of out of the folks that are coming out of the public schools or versus you know whether they came from private schools or home schools do we have that information at this point we do it nationally it looks to be that we have over 60 percent of our students that graduate from high schools that need some type of remedial course and so our community colleges do a great job of providing that but frankly if we're doing a good job in our school districts then we would be able to greatly reduce that now we're not talking about about those that are going back to college after being out of school for several years. That happens. We get rusty and and need a little bit of review. But I'm talking about the graduates. So I think we should be cognizant of remedial courses. And and if those remedial courses are still prevalent today, then we need to be asking, what can we do to improve this? Yeah, because, you know, they're paying a lot of money to and going into major debt just to go take the same math course that they just took, um, you know, only a few months prior, potentially, or even an English course as well. So 
Um, I think that that's, uh, uh, who knows, we could maybe lessen the debt of uh, young people as well or at it. So is there anything else um, about regarding these ESA accounts that you would want to talk about that we haven't hit on yet so far? I would say that the most important premise is, is that it's student-centered. We have been working so long and and funding education historically in Kansas about a system. And, and though that isn't necessarily a terrible way to look at it, we can actually even make it better by just looking at the students and wherever the students are, that's where that uh, payment goes because ultimately you're not taking from the schools. It stays with a student. And we have an obligation in the state of Kansas to fund students. That's what matters. That's what changes communities, changes lives, builds a better quality of life and a better economy for Kansas. So to lock kids into a one size fits all type of scenario is not good for Kansas. So I wish we wouldn't fight over that. Instead, we would just all fight for kids. Well, and with this current bill, with when in regards to funding at least, I mean, in these out years that we're looking at for this bill, it's not all all students all at once. As soon as this bill's enacted, I mean, it's it, it's it's does a, a method of steps. So yeah, to speak, absolutely. Right? It takes four years to get to universal. So it's a gradual uh, increase that would allow more students to enter in. Public school students could enter in at any time. However, if you are currently homeschooled or, or private educated, then there would be a cap from 2000 the first year, 4000 8000 and then open. We don't know what the demand will be here in Kansas. We hope that those that choose public education will continue to do what's best for their families. But we want to trust parents in Kansas to make that decision. And if there's a better environment, let's help them get to that better environment and just help kids win. Absolutely. Now, if I was a shady character and I said, well, shoot, you're offering me $5,000 a year and I got three kids and I wanted to get this get this money and start spending it on you know gambling or I wanted to start spending it on other things that weren't about their education, what are the safeguards in place in this bill to prevent that? Well, besides the fact that it is administered by the treasurer who has a, a fiduciary responsibility to manage this account, there's also a third party that will provide the digital background or the framework to oversee it. There can be real-time review of what purchases or requests for purchases. For example, you might have a garden wall that has opportunity for you to uh, purchase textbooks or have tuition paid or a school uniform. Those would need to be approved. They can be evaluated by the board. They um, There will be reviews by the board. So um, I think audits are absolutely an important part. We want to minimize fraud. And I think that we can do so and be responsible back to our taxpayers. So in some of this, some of this bill, like there's there's high school students that take college classes while they're still in high school. So does this education savings account cover those courses? But what about homeschoolers? Yeah, absolutely. So if you are homeschooling right now, no. Uh, the dual credit that you might be advantaged to have in a, a school that supported it, you would not have access to that. But with this program, you could potentially have a dual credit. And if you don't use all your dollars, then they can roll over and be used when you graduate from high school for a technical degree or for taking some college courses when that time comes. That is fantastic. Is there anything else that uh, we haven't hit on that you can think of at this point? 
No, I'm just really proud of the work that Kansas has done and those legislators that realize that we really do need to put students before systems. Absolutely. And this is something that, I, you know, as I travel the state talking to people for the leadership race, but also my own constituency, you know, when I'm talking to them on the door, they want these opportunities. They're wanting um, the ability to rate raise their families and teach them, you know, not only the principles that they themselves want to instill in them, uh, you know, for some homeschoolers that I've talked to in my district, but also the ability to make sure that if they are sending their kids to public schools, that it's the public school that's going to be best for their child. And if there's one in their area that's struggling, well, then why can't I just go down a few blocks to a different one that, you know, might, that has far better scores and, and potentially a better outcome for my child? Yep. Amen. I agree. So, well, thank you so much for your time, Madam Chair. We really appreciate how you haven't, excuse me, we really appreciate having you on today. And so uh, I look forward to continuing to work on this with you. And I'm sure that as this issue develops over the, over the session, we're going to still have more conversations about it. This bill will ultimately make it into conference committee at some point in time uh, if it's passed on the floor. And then once it's in conference committee, and depending on what the Senate passes, then at that point, you will enter into negotiations with the Senate. And uh, we'll have to see what uh, type of bill we end up with uh, on the floor for a final pass passage in order to send to the governor. I mean, do you think the governor signs this bill as is? Well, she's pledged that she would not. But I think that the more Republicans rally together and say we support kids, the more she has to consider it. She did say she governs from the middle of the road and 71% of all voters are in favor of school choice. So middle of the road to me would be, I'm going to take a serious look at this. Fantastic. Well, everybody, reach out to your state legislators, reach out to the governor, um, and let let us know your opinions on this. And as we, especially as we work it, and ultimately, if you have any other additional questions that we can either ask of the chair or myself or other members in the caucus, we'd be more than happy to answer those questions for you. Thank you all so very much for joining us on another episode of the Kansas Briefing, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.